Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Uh, welcome, everyone, to the show. It's uh, You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Uh, remember, you can text me, 2057. Love your text. Email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. And I've got a special reason why you'd want to be texting us. Uh, but first up, the show. Well, we've got, it's National Gardening Week this week. And so we've got... Uh, famous horticulturalist and the ambassador for Yates, Kate Hillier, coming to join us. And she's going to be talking about why you can grow your vegetables at home, even when you're in a very tight and small space. And so she's going to be explaining to us how we can provide for ourselves and why it's better that we grow our vegetables rather than just go off to the shop. And there's a special giveaway to celebrate uh, National Gardening Week, and you're going to love this. We've got three sets of prizes. Uh, each set is a can- canvas tote bag with 12 heirloom uh, seeds, packets of seeds, different seeds, uh, all the originals uh, from Yates. And to enter the door for that, you need to text us uh, and let us know your favourite veggie between carrots and lettuce, because that allows us to pull the text up easier and if you want an additional chance to win tell us what your best gardening tip is in 50 words or less text that to 2057 and you can email it at inbox at rallycheck.radio if you don't do text remember uh text what your favorite vegetables carrots lettuce and to improve your chances of winning give us a tip for gardening and the prize canvas bag heirloom veggies, 12 packets of seeds. Also, we've got Simon Fleck coming along. I'm going to particularly like this because this is about how to prepare for, you know, the power going out, uh, a natural disaster or something else. And it's the simple stuff that you can do that can provide for yourself and your family uh, when things don't go well like with flooding or high winds or the power goes down simon fleck he's coming up thank you for coming along and sharing your morning with us on really check radio real talk with rodney hyde what i want to achieve with rcr is conversation and i think we have lost the art of conversation With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way, because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together, and so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as I've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say whatever side you're on and the listener the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, 
or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And as listeners will be aware, my fingers are greening up with the help of Professor Wally Richards, our gardening guru. And it's a special time because we're coming up to the National Gardening Week, which is from the 16th to 23rd of October. And we have a very special guest. It's Kate Hillier, who has been described as, in the UK, gardening royalty. Because I don't know, it's always a long time in the UK, four, five, so many, so many generations have been horticulturalists. But we'll let Kate describe that. Kate, good morning. Good morning. Tell me about your lineage, because... I've been gardening for, oh, I don't know, a few weeks now, <laughs> and I'm loving it. But I understand that it's almost hot-wired into your DNA. Absolutely. It's it's sort of in the genes, I think. Um, my great-great-grandfather. Great-great-grandfather. Uh, oh, my goodness. Yeah, yes. yeah. he started a, a local nursery business in the south of England, in Winchester. Um, in what year? Do you know roughly? Oh, gosh. 160-odd years ago, something like that, maybe a little bit more. <laughs> I should know off the top of my head, but um, I don't. But We were we running around in grass skirts and killing each other back then, and you were busy <laughs> being horticulturalists. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we're fifth generation now and working on the next one. <laughs> <laughs> and when he started that, business that doesn't capture quite the enormity of it because it grew right yep yep it grew for a very long time and particularly with my grandfather um who was a plant hunter and he'd go off into the wilds and um uh find new plants new varieties and launch them and um, I sort of think of him a bit like Noah in that uh, he decided to create an ark for plants. Wow. And yeah, so he created an arboretum, which is in the south of England. And his goal at that time was basically to have two of each uh, woody plants he was focusing on so that you always had something that you could propagate from. So oh, wonderful. Yeah. And he was knighted for his services. Yes, yes, he was. And were they Hilliers or did they travel under a different name? Under under Hilliers. Hilliers. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And um I suppose the other claim is that we are in the Guinness Book of Records for the most ever gold medals at Chelsea Flower Show. No. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's something to be proud of. I've I've got involved in that a few times and, and then obviously was involved with the flower shows in New Zealand as well. So, yeah, I think we were up to 76 or 77 um, before we, uh, unfortunately, COVID impacted and we we didn't do Chelsea that year. And, and mm. we've now, now turned into a different direction. But I don't think anybody's going to beat that record no. anytime soon. And <laughs> growing up, was it always that you were to be a horticulturalist? Or, I mean, it must have been quite strange being a fifth generation. Like, you can't say, oh, I think I'll go and open a fish and chips shop. <laughs> but, well, I mean, actually, we could, and I was never going to go into horticulture. I was sort of, you know, dead set against it, almost being put off by it. I mean, I, I remember going to school and the teachers saying to me, oh, can you get me some free plants? You know, it was. <laughs> <laughs> you should have said, can you get me an A? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I was actually originally going to go into journalism. That's what mm. I wanted to do. Um, and then, as you do when you're at uh, uni, I ended up owing my dad a bit of money. Mm. And he said, OK, you work for two weeks without wages to pay me back. And I never left. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So it really is in the genes. You can't beat your genes. And did you walk into it? and start and just love it? I did. I worked at one of our garden centres in Winchester and I had a good team of people that I was learning so much from. But, yeah, I just loved working with the customers, sort of, sort of trying to do problem solving, that sort of thing. Um, and then I did my apprenticeship. And I suppose the only thing is I did rebel in the end. I am the black sheep um, in that once I completed my apprenticeship there, I worked for Hillier for probably about seven or eight years. Um, but I'd been to New Zealand when I was 2021 20, doing my OE and I'd fallen in love with New Zealand. So I decided to come back here, and I think part of that was a bit stubborn. I wanted to stand on my own two feet, and I didn't mm. want to always be under the the hillier shadow. Um, mm. So yeah, I've been I've been in the horticultural industry here for a very long time now as well. How lovely! Well, I have a journey too, because my father was a fantastic home gardener. And he fed the whole street. And he had virtually eliminated weeds, you know, and he would work in his garden. It was like his therapy. And my mother, till the day she took sick, um, always had a beautiful garden and she lived for it. It kept her alive in the finish, just looking after her and tending her beautiful flower gardens. And I never had an inch of it. Mm. I just wanted to go away and read books and I took no interest in it. And my parents would try and get me to do a little work when I was a boy growing up in the garden. And I resented every minute of it. <laughs> and um, they both passed away. And under Wally Richards' tutelage, I have started gardening. And I absolutely love it. Oh, that's fantastic. I, I regard any vegetable that I get off my garden as a bonus because actually i just find the digging and the preparing and the planting and the watering i just found find it very soothing 
Oh, it's so therapeutic. Yeah, absolutely. And after the COVID experiences, I've needed therapy. <laughs> <laughs> and gardening has become my therapy. And my wife used to grow things or does grow things. And now I'm actually realizing that she doesn't get quite the strike that I get of success. And I'm wondering if I do have that little genetic green fingers that my mum and well, dad had. Maybe you do. And I bet you'd find that you actually absorbed a lot more knowledge growing up yes. with that than you realized. I think that's true. And of course, Wally's been a great help. Now, tell me, um, people listening oftentimes have limited space, limited time, and don't want to spend their evenings gardening. What can they do? What's the easiest thing that a person wanting to grow a few veggies can do? But specifically veggies thereafter, um, it can be it, it can be daunting, like you said. You sort of look at those giant uh, allotments and veggie gardens, and it can yeah. be a bit daunting. Um, and houses are getting smaller, courtyards are appearing more than gardens, etc. So it's a matter of picking the right veggies. So um, if you've got a limited space, it's amazing what you can grow in pots but for example you wouldn't choose to grow potatoes in pots because you know you should use up all usable space really quickly um so pots that can sit on the deck that actually you know how you were you're saying how much you enjoy it being able to sit out there with a glass of wine and you potter around and you give things a little bit of a water and um i love harvesting and eating straight away so one of the really simple um, veggies for growing in a pot would, for example, be the spinach, the baby spinach, mm. um, or the everlasting spinach. Yates does a great everlasting one. And what I love is that you literally go and pick a few leaves and you chuck it in your salad right there and then sort of thing. So what what does it mean to be an everlasting, everlasting spinach? Uh, all year round, basically. Really? Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of spinaches are only available and the baby spinach is only available seasonally. But if you look at the Yates range, there's an everlasting one that will, will basically go all year round or a perennial one. So do you have to keep planting it? No, it'll keep going. Keep cutting me. No, no, keep cutting it back so that you get the fresh growth because I prefer the nice tender fresh growth. But yeah, it'll keep going. That's Yates, like that. that's Yates almost putting them out of, out of business because I buy the seeds once and I never need buy them again. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you'll go on holiday for a few weeks. And... <laughs> <laughs> Everlasting spinach. I never knew there was such a thing. Yeah, 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 there is. Um, and then and that's the... what made Popeye strong, right? So it's good for you. Absolutely. I learned too that asparagus goes like you don't get anything from asparagus for a couple of years and then it just keeps shooting up. I didn't know that about asparagus. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Asparagus will keep going. Um, what else? Spinach is a good thing to grow. What else? Yeah. So um, other items like um, baby carrots are perfect in there. Lots of herbs. So particularly. Just tell me about a baby carrot. Baby why, is it, why is it called a baby carrot, not a carrot? <laughs> What's the difference? Because it is literally a small, so, um, yeah, it's a small carrot oh. rather than a great long one. So you don't need as deep a soil or okay. as a bigger pot to grow them in. And does a 
I always thought a baby cat was just a little carrot that hadn't grown to adulthood. <laughs> um, God, I'm stupid. Um, tell me, I guess it depends where you live and it depends where you're placing everything. But like, I've got a say, I've got an apartment in Auckland, or I've got a small little back section in Auckland. Say, mm. could I grow how 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 around the year could I grow carrots? Um, you can pretty much grow them all year round, particularly in Auckland where it's reasonably warm. Wow. Um, if you don't get frosts, etc. Yeah, yeah, you can. So we've got baby spinach, we've got uh, no, we've got everlasting spinach, baby carrots. Yep. What else? Yeah. Um, easy things for the salads would be radishes. Um, there is a an amethyst rabbit radish, um, which is quite cool because that's got purple um skin and white flesh. So, like, you know, to chuck it in the salad, that always looks really good. Um, and they're quick and easy to grow, they don't take long at all. Can I just get that name again? Then? Amethyst. Oh, yep. Amethyst. Radish amethyst. And I think the the skin, the name is obviously named after the skin of the um the plot of the veg. Um so, oh, the yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. What else? I'm excited. Oh, I've never thought so many, so many things. Herbs, I definitely recommend because um, you know you go to the supermarkets and you buy those living herbs, and they that's so out. bloody dear. I know. Well, they are dear, and they're not designed to live for very long. I'm probably being a bit rude now to all those living herb people, but growing herbs from seed and put spacing them properly. What they do in those pots is they cram thousands of little plants into these pots they don't have a decent root structure they don't have it they're not in a decent potting mix so you almost literally use them as disposable herbs so i would strongly be recommending if you've got a nice sunny spot then for example you know your basil mint thyme that sort of thing would all be fantastic in pots i got told off over dinner last night <laughs> because i got a big planter box and I planted my herbs out and I have to apologize to you because not having spoken to you I did buy some of those herbs living from the supermarket <laughs> and I planted them out and they're not doing very well I apologize but I was sitting there and talking about lamb and how much I enjoy mint sauce and everyone looked at me and said, oh, yes, and of course, you put your mint in a, you contained it. And I said, oh, yes, it's in a planter box. To which my wife said, yes, with all the other herbs. Yeah. To which everyone started to tut-tut me. Had I, <laughs> have I made a terrible mistake twice over, once getting the living herb one, and second, <clears throat> not putting a kerosene tin or some jolly thing around my mint yeah i'm not sure kerosene tin would be the best idea but what yes, should i do certainly plant it separately um if and if you want to put it in a planter box or something like that I, I would personally use a terracotta pot because it's porous still um so the moisture will go in and out but yeah 
Uh, mint, you can, I mean, you can plant it with other things, but it will take over given half the chance. So your other your other veggies will be battling for it. Wow, I so love mint. But mm. Oh, I love mint as well. That was my job every Sunday morning was to make the mint sauce. <laughs> okay, well, I'm gonna this. I got to say, my mint is actually not growing at a rate that can keep up with me, which is probably the problem. Uh, the rest I've planted from seed. I got maybe basil. I've got Yates seeds. I'm gonna have to get Yates mint. Um, I was so desperate to get mint going, and I'll put it in a terracotta pot because mint to me is beautiful. Yeah. So herbs, any herbs or particular herbs, just the herbs um, you use? Well, to be honest, pretty much any herbs. Um, I always say remember where they come from. So um, m most herbs are from the Mediterranean originally. So make sure they they need to go in a hot, dry um, situation. So mm. um, looking at the times, um, looking at oregano, that sort of thing, they'll all want hot and dry. So if you if you've got a damp, shady spot, then you know that wouldn't be your best bet. Um, but there are, you, there are there are other. If you have a tunnel house or a glass house, put them in there. Well, they like the sun, though. So, um, I mean, certainly you would put them in there to start with. And, you know, for, for your listeners who are further down south at the moment, I mean, I will always recommend sowing from seed because yes. it's far more economical than, yes. than growing plants. Um, but at this time of year, you do still need to give a bit of protection um, yep. before you plant them out into the pots. But once it's warmed up, they really will like direct sunlight. So, yes, put it in a um, protection house or um, something along those lines to start with at the moment. But as soon as you can get them out into the fresh air, the better. Great. Mm. Um, if you're on a small garden, can you get a little – what would be the best way of protecting and warming up your plants? Um, small garden. I, I mean, obviously, plant putting things by the house. So over the winter, um, we'll bring. So we've. You should see my deck. It's ridiculous. It's covered in pots, um, and we just pull them all close to the to the house because they'll actually get warmth um, from the from the building and some protection that way. Um, but otherwise, um, a lot of people will use mulch to protect the plants or even pea straw, that sort of thing to um, basically wrap around the plants. And if you're in a frost area, then you can actually get frost cloth that you would lay over the top of them mm. to protect them. But um, other than Invercargill and Gore and, you know, down there, temporary protection is, you know, is 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 generally okay put it this way where i am we don't get any frost so i don't really need to do any protection mm. i do a lot of mad baking i bake every day and people told me that i should always keep a diary and write everything down and then because when you get something that works and you think oh what did i do how did i do that i've forgotten and i'm terrible because i never write it down and i started off with good intentions of keeping a diary for my garden and it lasted one day because <laughs> it seems so tedious to me to sort of oh i planted 
you know, I planted my radishes on the um, 6th of October and, you know, gave them this and did them this. But I'm thinking, even though I don't, that keeping a diary to guide you for the next year is quite significant. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. Um, and also it reminds you what you've planted because personally I hate having little plastic labels all over my garden. So I've actually downloaded an app. There's a plant ID oh. app. Oh. <laughs> um, Tell me. Um, I'm going to have to look it up now. I think it's literally called the Plant ID app. It is um, really useful because you can take photos and it will um, ID the plant or it'll ID the weed, um, but also it will ID where you've planted what in your garden and keep a track of it, the, the varieties for you. So, um, no yeah, it's quite it's quite useful. I don't use it as, as well as I can. I'm not going to be able to find it on my no, phone now. I'll I've got find so it. many. We'll, find but... it. we'll put it. We'll oh, put it on. Sorry. Picture this. It's called. Picture. Well, I get a bit of a problem because, like I said, unlike you, I don't have five generations in a lifetime of gardening. I'm like, you know, five minutes, and I plant my things, and I look, and I look, and I look, and then things pop up, and I think, ah, oh, is that a board bean or a weed? <laughs> I wonder what a board bean looks like when it first happens, you know? <laughs> and then when it's a board bean, the excitement oh. that I have is embarrassing. It's and fantastic. It is so fantastic. And I can't get over that a little seed just poked into the ground and watered given a little bit of fertilizer just becomes a whole plant i mean it's like the it's a miracle of life it's just and it's sort of an everyday thing but it's, it's to me it's just like astonishing mm, mm. it's fantastic i i did um a story uh, last week of course it's school holidays and you think it's fantastic. Well, the kids is is even oh, yeah. more amazing. You know, um, uh, it's just so fantastic. I never. It was a very bad joke a long time ago. But you know, where where do peas come from, Mummy? Yeah. Well, they come. They come from the freezer. You know, um, <laughs> yeah. actually teaching kids how to grow their own. Um, fruit and veggies and the success that they feel. Actually, was Yates, it, was, I was going to say, Gates has got an amazing range of kid seeds at the moment. Yes. Um, including was one it, popcorn. Was it Yates that did that promotion with the supermarket or some other company? Uh, no, I think that was a, a, a wholesale seed importer, okay. I, I think. Don't, don't quote me on that. Because my that, kids loved that. It's such a great idea. My kids absolutely loved it. Now, you're tied up with Yates, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You work for Yates? No, no, no. I I do this sort of thing for them. So a um, bit of a brand ambassador. I Yates is a fantastic brand with a great range of products, and I'm, I'm happy to support them. But, no, I don't work for them. Tell me about Yates because you go – here's the thing. i got to tell you this because, you know, me, first-time gardener, um, I go to 
Bunnings or Mitre 10 for my plant product. I walk into the seed section. Now, I can remember when if you wanted a packet of potato chips or ice cream, say, you'd go to the shop and it'd be salt and vinegar or plain. Yeah. I now go into the supermarket and I actually can't choose because there seems these dozens of different, dozens of different jolly potato crisps. I go into Bunnings, I'm staring at the seeds, and I think, oh, I'll plant some tomatoes. Oh, mm. my God. <laughs> There's not just tomatoes. It's like I go into the supermarket and I can sort of at least see the tomatoes and I think, oh, they look nice. I'll buy that packet. I go to buy the seeds and is this tomato, that tomato? And I'm thinking, how do I know which tomato to buy? Then I notice there's these different brands. There's Yates, there's Mrs. Mrs. Fothergall's. What are the other ones? There's all these different brands, and they're all selling tomatoes, and they're all different tomatoes. And I end up so that, you know, you get that almost anxiety because there's so much variety to choose from that you can't actually make a choice. I just wanted, I just went in to get some tomato seeds. (laughs) So obviously Yates is the one that's been around the longest, right? Yeah. And you're their ambassador. Yeah. They've got a bit of history as well. They go, tell me about Yates, the company. Well, I'm again, you're going to put me on the spot here. Um, Arthur Yates, I think it was. It was too. That name rings a bell. Yeah, came over from England um, many, 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 many years ago. He's at least a couple of generations back. Um, And he set up the business in in New Zealand. Um, And, I, I mean, to be honest, I think that's why when you're looking at your seed stand, you go for a Personally, I go for a company and a brand that I that I know and trust. Um, yes. um, so Yates is here and in Australia, um, and they yes they've they've done a lot of they introduce a lot of new varieties of seeds as well. When you look at the seed racks, there'll always be different ones and new and exciting ones. Um, as as do the other companies as well, yeah. but. Um, just to answer the confusion thing, I, I love the fact that a couple of years ago, Yates decided just to do their seed stands by colour because they, they're they all traditionally done alphabetically. But unless you know what the name of the plant is and is it its common name or is it its Latin name or whatever. So instead, Yates made the decision to do all the yellow seeds together, all the blue seeds together for the flowering anyway, at least, which makes life much easier. Well, that is funny because I go along and I want tomatoes and uh, the veggies in Bunnings are in alphabetical order. And um, I figured that out at least because I used to go to every seed looking along, looking along. I could never figure out how how much they'll cost because they have, I think, three colours for cost on the stand. And I've never figured out how I deduce that. But I always work on the basis that if I get a few tomatoes off it, it's a cheap way of getting tomatoes, so I don't worry oh. what my seeds cost. I mean, I adore cherry tomatoes. Yes. But they're they're six, seven dollars a pottle in the in the supermarkets. Whereas if you go if you go and buy seeds, you get 
hundreds, if not thousands of seeds. In fact, I've got some. So the Yates, Yates has got a new heirloom one, which is a yellow cherry tomato. And you get 25 seeds in a packet um, and costs approximately $4. So and it's a hell of a lot. Costs and about yeah, sorry. Out of each tomato plant, you get a lot of tomatoes, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But going back to, you know, how we were talking about small gardens, that's the other way of choosing. So when you're looking at your tomatoes, a lot of them are still, you know, the tall growing varieties, which can take up a bit of space. But there's a lot of patio tomatoes now as well that you can just grow in pots, just with hundreds of little um cherry tomatoes mm. and then that, again that's great because the kids just come along and they'll pick a tomato and they'll eat it like a lolly now another thing that i have noticed and it's no disrespect to yates but i think about oh i'll grow tomatoes and i google it what do i need when do i plant it and what do i need and i go onto the yates um site and they say things like Oh, you use, I'm making this up, but it sort of captures the essence. <laughs> you need Yates special uh, mix to grow tomatoes. You need Yates special food plant for tomatoes. You need this and that. And I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, cheapers, I'm not sure I want all this crap and spend all this money. And surely tomatoes can just frigging grow in the ground with a bit of my compost and call it quits because i do feel again with the greatest respect i do feel as though i can be taking a bit of a ride with the upsell and yeah. then i worry then i worry that i'm selling myself short because i haven't got yates special tomato food well exactly and to be honest Whilst some of the fertilizers do have the same basic ingredients, they do they they are adjusted depending on what it's being applied to. So, for example, firstly, planting your seeds into your compost, that's a no-go. Oh. <laughs> because basically the seeds, when they first germinate, the, the little roots are so delicate. And if they hit a pocket of high nitrogen, for example, or um, they'll burn. So you should definitely always use a proper seed raising mix. There's a black that, magic seed raising mix. That might account might account for one row of my board beans never appearing. Could be. Well, mind you, that could also be the slugs and the snails. Okay. <laughs> See, this is the thing, right? There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff out there trying to stop my plants. Oh, there is, there is. But just going back to the tomatoes. So seed mix, example. seed mix is a necessity yeah so it's very fine it's very friable so it makes it easy for the roots to spread but it's mainly about the fertilizer in there so it's a very even because if you i mean if if you even looked at some of those granulated fertilizers if um if the seed germinated right there they'd probably get burnt so um, so definitely you want your seed raising mix, but it doesn't matter whether it's a tomato or a sunflower okay. that goes into it. And, um, and so you would always, this is important to me, you would always take your seeds, put them into a plant mix, 
and then transfer them to the ground? You can plant some seeds directly into the ground, particularly later in the season when there's no risk of it being cold. But if you want to give things a head start, um, then yes, I grow in a seed tray and then I transplant into a smaller pot and you let them grow in there and then I would put them in the garden. Oh, good to know. Oh, I wish I'd known that. <laughs> As I said, some of them, some of the bigger ones, your sweet peas, your broad beans, your sunflowers, you can plant them directly into the ground, but just at the right time of year. So if you have a look at the back of the seed packets, there's sort of a little geographical map yes. that tells you yes. when to plant it. Yes. Uh, yeah. And then, and oh, go back to the tomatoes, because I feel you've done Yates wrong a little bit. So Okay. <laughs> For example, with the tomato fertilizer, it'll be high in potash, which is specifically what encourages flowers, which is specifically what encourages fruiting. So they will adjust the ingredients to suit whatever it is. Though it is a bit daunting when you've got six different sorts of fertilizers, but <laughs> it is daunting because I mean I've got a garden shed now full of stuff, you know, and I've got lost it even where I have. I need an app to organize my fertilizers and pest control, if you know what I mean. I'm thinking that the simple task of planting a seed is now becoming um arduous with product. Oh, you, the, you definitely don't want that. The seedling, the seedling mix seems uh sensible to me i can get that now and i realize why i've had some catastrophic failures which i haven't i haven't shared with listeners because <laughs> i didn't want to sound a loser <laughs> um oh my goodness but things like potatoes you wouldn't you just plant them in the garden yeah, you plant them in the garden. Potatoes have a special technique because... Um, yes, I'm familiar with you know, that. Whole, we had Wally, yeah. Wally Richards take us over that. And you use a seed potato. So do Yates do potatoes? Uh, no, they don't do seed potatoes. Yeah. But you'll funny? find them in the garden centre. Yeah. They look miserable, my seed potatoes, and I wondered why um, Bunnings seemed to be letting me down. But then I thought, well, I suppose they're not for eating, they're for planting, and they looked, you know but I'll see how I go on potatoes. Now, I have never, until this week, ever in my life planted a flower on the basis that, A, I'd never gardened. But when I did start gardening, I thought, well, I'm a utilitarian, and it's like, yeah, I like flowers and roses. They look very pretty and whatnot. But the great thing about veggies is I can eat them. And I don't have to spend money at the shop. Flowers, well, I can go without. But I planted marigolds on Wally Richard's advice in my tunnel house in order to scare something off. Hmm. White fly or something. Yeah, white fly. So um, tell us about flowers in a small section. What could you do there? Well, if you're if you're wanting practical flowers like mm -hmm. um, like you were talking about marigolds to keep away your white fly, um, you would well could well be worth planting flowers to avoid mosquitoes. We have quite a bit of water around us, um, and you can actually plant flowers that will keep mosquitoes away from the garden. And I think that's a huge plus. 
Really? Uh, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, absolutely. Um, any of, you could obviously get pyrethrum as a plant. You can get um, citrus, uh, citronella. So geraniums are all um, where citronella comes from. Pyrethrum is a little pretty little daisy, um, and you can get that in seed form. Um, or lavenders, that's something else that um, mosquitoes don't like. So they're sort of practical gardening ones. Um, what about even, sand flies? Uh, I, I think you, <laughs> you could have a go. The citronella might might be strong enough to do it. Um, but, um, yeah, they're, they're a little bit of a bugger, those things, aren't they? Um, I'm just, I'm just see, I'm, I'm, I'm writing all this down. Oh wow, how wonderful! And if you put them around the house, I'd scare the mosquitoes away. Yeah, yeah. So particularly, plant them in pots where you like to sit out in the evening. Um, brush against them every so often to help sort of release the the scent. And I think, um, and and they do, they do a great job. I mean, that's literally what the mosquito repellents is made of from made from. So yeah. So they would be a good idea. Um, other practical flowers. I mean, I always think I'm a bit of a wine um, fa- uh, buff, I suppose. I do like my yes. wine. So you'll always notice they plant a rose on the end of each um, yes. each section of the uh, vineyard. And that's basically will, because if anything's going to get a pest or a disease, that'll get it first. And that, uh, you know, identi- identifies it to the viticulturalist. Oh. That's the canary in the gold mine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I did not know that was the reason. Mm. They'll get all the bugs and the diseases in advance. So you get advance warning that your vineyard is about to be attacked by some pest. Yeah. And you can identify the pest because it's in the rows first and you can make uh, a countervailing measure. Yeah, spray. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and the then, rose, the ro- a rose would work like that in your own veggie garden. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! There's so much to learn. Um, <laughs> and pollination—that's the other thing. That's the other practical flowers. So particularly if you've got your veggie garden, if you've got fruit trees, etc., planting flowers that will attract bees and butterflies, etc., would be great as well. How do you pollinate in your tunnel house? Um, well, with the tunnel houses, you can take the covers off. So I would be pulling the covers off and letting nature do its thing. But um, if the worst comes to the wood, you get a cotton wool bud and you literally go around and you brush from stamen to stamen. You'll be doing your own fertilising. <laughs> I'm not sure I feel comfortable about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Mm. Yeah, but yeah, um, blue. Wally, Wally Richards told us a story of a uh, of a horticulturalist who had a very successful tomato glasshouse, and he had uh, the reason that he did was he had um, it was coke I think or coal buried in the ground beneath it, and it would slowly seep up, and then he had them all trained on. Um, he had wire across the top, and he could literally flick one the one wire and they'd all shake all down and Ah. and pollinate the tomatoes which i thought was very ingenious yes very Um, and because if you had a big glass house and you're going down doing your pollinating 
um, it would get quite tedious with a cotton bud, wouldn't it? Oh, it certainly would. Yes, commercially, that sounds like a much better idea. Uh, do you see a renaissance happening in gardening, or is it just me because I notice in gardens now? I think definitely COVID had a huge impact on people, and I actually almost think climate change has had an impact as well mm -hmm. because you know, fruit and veggies that are transported hundreds of miles around the country, um, carbon footprint mm. isn't nearly as good as ones you've grown your own, you know, grown yourself. So I think there is, um, and I think there's a lot of people starting from scratch who need that help and advice. So, you know, like you jumping onto the Yates website, you know, there's so many useful um, websites with education and how to do things and you know what i um when i was doing my flower show stuff i would go around to a lot of the different garden clubs and i'd do talks at the evenings and um when i first started out you know most people were 60 and above um but you go to the garden clubs now and, and some of the clubs were closing because you know they weren't getting new members and things like that but you go to the garden clubs now and people are becoming younger and younger yeah, it's a it's a great way to share knowledge and and um, advice, and so yeah, I, I'm really pleased to see that that there is this upsurge um, in gardening, um, in general, Seed and, and growing your own veggies. Uh, my big message today is seedling trays. Um, tell me, are you a flower person or a veggie person? Uh, my husband and I are the perfect combination because I am actually a flower person, but he's a veggie person. Mm. Um, and probably our thing is we live in the Waitakere Ranges. So for us, we're surrounded by bush, which we love. But um, our garden is sort of trying to do a bit of mix and match. So we've got the native bush, but I'm inserting some ornamental plantings yes. and simon simon's found a bit for his veggie patch out the back so um yeah we're, we're a bit of both and of course i think food grown at home in the garden with care and love is tastier and more nutritious than something in a plastic bag at the supermarket oh definitely definitely i mean like we said you know going and picking tomatoes or we've got a pizza oven out the back so we love the nice. fact that we've got a little area for, for the different herbs and people just go and cut their own herbs to put on top of their pizzas it's great how wonderful now um do you oh, i just forgot my train of thought i had such a burning question to ask you about my problems and it's gone because my problems are so manifold and many <laughs> oh here's a question for you one final question for you you garden flowers and husband gardens veggie and it's also your job and you've done it forever down through generations do you get sick of it no i don't get sick of it um but there are times when it is it feels a bit more of a chore um, and um, I'm actually not doing quite as much work as I was in this field, and I see that my garden has improved accordingly. Um, I think it's like, <laughs> yeah. 
a, a mechanic's they, car or something like yes. that. You know, so um, I get very excited doing the foundation work and doing the design work and getting the layout right, but the weeding and the and the pruning I get slightly more bored with. <laughs> so yeah, well, that's. I, I had an experience where I was sort of knocked out of action through uh, having a bit of sickness in the family, nothing, you know, nothing, it just kids being unwell, and then being busy on other jobs, and I let my garden get away from me, and I came in and looked at it, and it was almost heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Because it was like, oh my God, I gotta weed this and I just had to get to work. And I was at that point down on my hands and knees, scratching away in the dirt, thinking, ah, oh, just go to the supermarket and stop all the stuff. But once I'd got through the chore, it's so exciting again. But I I I do know that I have to keep at it. And of course, now my big thing is we're getting into the stage where we live that water, watering is a big deal. Yeah. And um, I've really got to get on top of that. Well, it's wonderful to talk to you, Katie. Yeah. Uh, And despite my worry about Yates upselling me, I'm going to (laughs) only ever buy Yates seeds now because the reason being that'll cut my decision point down by about four fifths and i only <laughs> need to spend a fifth of my time because i'll exclude everything else and just look at the yates stand and know that mr arthur yates is looking after over me and um that we've got generations and who these other people are i've got no idea but i feel with arthur i'm safe if you've chosen to be their ambassador it's got to be good and i'm going to look at their upselling stuff and not take it as I don't need any of that because you've explained to me the seeding mix issue. Mm. And I think it might explain my little failures. There you are. I'm glad I've been useful. <laughs> you are very useful and you're very cheery. It's lovely. We've been talking to Katie Hillier. That's United Kingdom gardening royalty, which isn't a sort of thing that you think about, right? But they probably go back to 1066 or something, like everyone does in Great Britain, gardening, you know. It was just in their genes. But lucky lucky for us, she's come to New Zealand and lived here for many years. Why? Because she chose it, and she loves New Zealand. And she chose, chose us to be the ambassador for Yates. And I know what the question was that I was thinking about, so I'm going to have to quickly do it. So we're on Radley Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Here it is. It was burning in my brain. What does it mean when I look at a Yates packet and it says heirloom? It's it's a traditional form of seed. So they've gone. So some people um, don't like the genetically engineered seed so much. Heirloom variety means it's an older variety of seed that actually might have gone out of popularity for some reason, but actually it's a bloody good seed. And so Yates are reintroducing some of those older varieties. Oh, wow. And so they have kept them in an arboretum or something like your... Yeah, it's the Yates Ark as well. (laughs) The Yates Ark. And then they bring them back. And so you might be growing a broccoli 
that granddad would have grown in the 1920s or something as compared to planting a broccoli that was um, produced through breeding and genetic engineering to be this perfect little broccoli. Absolutely, yeah. I sometimes feel the flavours are much better on those heirloom varieties. Really? Yeah, I think they. It's less focus on the colour and stuff like that, and it's it's back back to the good old days. That's how I feel. Oh about. wow! I will look into that because I always think you know latest or modernist is best. But you you're right because we, in many many ways, we've gone downhill. That was very wonderful. That was Katie Hillier, Yates Ambassador, Gardening Royalty, sharing with her her knowledge. Don't need much of a space to be able to grab, have a radish, have a lettuce, have a bit of um a few flowers and have a garden you don't need the big space and you don't need to put the big effort in my problem was i probably started too big um i probably would have been better just to start in a small way and not all or make my mistakes send us a text please at 2057 email me at inbox at realitycheck.radio what a lovely lady what a lovely history and um what great advice for gardening and looking after ourselves. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you. So get in touch with us now. Oh, you're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Here's the thing. We keep hearing about it. We keep thinking that we should be doing it, prepping. What is it? How do you do it? Does it cost much money? Is it hard work? Well, to help me understand prepping, to help you understand prepping, and to get to know the culture of prepping and what is going on and why we're joined this morning by Simon Fleck. Good morning. Morning, Rodney. How are you? Do you get this all the time? Do people just say to you, oh, I love your Irish accent? Uh, Yes, I do, actually. It's probably one of my strong points in New Zealand is the accent. (laughs) Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny? We just and there's some accents that absolutely great, and there are some accents that we just adore. Well, I like the New Zealand accent. My wife's New Zealand, so you know, I I really like the New Zealand accent. It's much softer than the Australian. Yeah, well, we like to think so, and of course, um, if you're a New Zealander, you don't think you have an accent. Yeah, well, I didn't know how to accent until I left Belfast. I know, it's funny. And my kids, we're living down south, (laughs) and my kids are starting to roll their R's, which is pretty funny. Ah, yes, yes. Tell me, let's get into it. What is prepping exactly? Well, I would consider it that you're just prepared for any event that's outside the normal run of the day. Uh, activities that you may or may not face on a daily basis. So, for example, where I live, I prep for an earthquake. Um, We live on the main fault line that runs through New Zealand. And it's not a question of if, 
it's a question of when that big one's going to roll through. And so, prepping is just being prepared for those eventualities. So is do if if you think I need to get prepared and I'm on the main fault line and I need to think about an earthquake, do you do a risk assessment of likely scenarios? Because where you are, yes, it's possible for having an earthquake, but there could be other things too, right? 100%. So if you're on the coast, you would look at tsunamis. If you're in um, the cities, you would look at uh, buildings falling, uh, debris, that sort of thing. My my risk assessment here is if you survive the initial earthquake, I live in the Wairapa, so we have the Rimatucka Incline and three rivers up to Masterton, for example. So if, a num- if an eight comes through or larger earthquake, um, those three bridges are gone and that Rimatucka road is going to come down. And if you look at how long they've taken to fix the Manila 2 road, which has been out of use for 10 years or something now, that's what you're looking at is actually the aftermath of it, not the actual. I mean, you can prepare for the actual incident as well by stabilizing things in your home and attaching them to walls so they don't fall on you and everything else. But it's more the after effects mm. when you've no water, no food, no electricity. Now, someone like me um, sails through life blissfully under unaware of the risks that are around us. And I recently, I'm living in um, Arrowtown, down by Queenstown, and I was chatting away to a fellow, and he just casually mentioned, he says, well, what would you do if there's an earthquake? And I thought, oh, I hadn't really thought about it. And then he said, because this place, is quite tricky because there's going to be one and what will happen is the Crown Range will get knocked out, the road through the Nevis will get knocked out and you'll be trapped. Yep. And you think, oh, my goodness, I never thought about that. Yep. And then you add on compound factors. And then then when I thought about it, I didn't quite know what to do. So you're to help well, us. I, I th- yeah. Um, I mean, if you add on compounding factors for that too, because if you, if you think of the uh, earthquake coming at the worst possible time, so in the middle of winter, because earthquakes don't, you know, they don't just happen in summer. So if you were caught in that situation, you would have the compounded fact of a winter to face with no electricity, uh, no power coming in until that was up and running. And depending on how badly the rest of the country is affected, would depend on when you get help. But there's 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 real easy things you can do to to offset. Well, let's that. just um, let, we'll do that. But let's first of all. So the first thing you do is you look around where you live in your environment, and you think, what are my threats? Right? Obviously, hundred percent. I'm not going to be affected by a tsunami. Yes, 100%. So I forget about a tsunami affecting me here. i got earthquakes. Now, let's just take your situation because that's the one you're most familiar with. 
you're on the mm-hmm. uh, fault, so you're thinking earthquakes. What else could happen to you where you are? Well, there's always the threat of major, as we've seen in Gisborne, major weather events, from uh, rain and flooding, which are kind of different. Each event has its own particular set of prepping, if you like, preparing for that disaster. For example, in the flood one, it is you have everything ready to go in what we call uh, go bags or grab bags, and you just take as much as you can in a, in a flood event. You take as much as you can, you put it in your ute, your car, whatever, and you get to high ground. That's pretty much what I would do in that situation, is have all of your... Uh, bank information, the deed to your house, all your important family information in one bag ready to go, Uh, and then your food, water, all of that pre-prepared, ready to carry, and you just load that in the truck and you drive to a high ground and you ride out the storm. Mm. What else could Um, be a risk where you are? Earthquakes? Fires is another one. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can get fires coming through. Fire's probably a secondary risk as well from an earthquake. If there's there's a fire and the power goes out, then you know the fire brigade aren't going to get out to help you. Um, so fires, you'd be looking at um, yeah weather events. That would be I would say would be the three main ones. Yes, uh, and of course or invasion or stuff like that are probably remote, mm. but not unheard of because we live in, you know, precarious times. So uh, that, that again, is a, a completely different set of steps um, for that. That's where you'd have your wealth secured and easy to carry, I would say, gold, and you need to just pick that up and go as fast as you can to somewhere where troops aren't invading or advancing. So, what each, it? each different have different preps to them so prepping for uh, floods is different to prepping to droughts You've got me worried Simon you know because we have witnessed in New Zealand in this last little while some terrific uh, catastrophes Uh, I'm thinking of course the Christchurch earthquake um, the Auckland floods, the East Coast uh, floods, um, mm-hmm. COVID, and you realise yeah. too that our infrastructure and our government isn't is creaking along, hardly coping with normal days, let alone. Uh, a cataclysmic event. Yeah. I would say if there's a major earthquake in Wellington, it would bankrupt the country. It yeah. would just bankrupt the country. And another thing you have to look at is from from the point of view of depending on how far and up and down the country it reaches, like if the earthquake's big enough and it affects Nelson, uh, the top of the South Island, bottom of the North Island, even people in rural areas like I am, uh, probably won't get help immediately because all of the help will be centred on Wellington. So you will have uh, emergency aid and everything obviously sent to Wellington because people will be under tons of rubble. 
And if it happens between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m., there's going to be a lot of people. And you're absolutely right, Rodney, in, in your observation that the, the country's creaking along. I don't think the health service could actually uh, cope with a, with a, uh, an eight or higher coming in uh, to Wellington. Uh, it couldn't cope with the amount of injuries that it receives from that. Hence why being prepared and having your own first aid kit, your own knowledge of first aid will ease the uh, congestion on your your first aid and hospitals uh, until you can actually get people there. You can look after them. I have a, a very good friend who went through a traumatic time in the Christchurch earthquakes yes, and realised, I mean, like a lot of people, I guess he was suffering post-traumatic stress. Yes. But he realised how extremely vulnerable he was, and vulnerable in ways that you'd never normally think of, like just drinking water. Yes. And yep. so from part of his recovery, I guess, was to get prepared. And he started going on <laughs> prepping sites, right? Mm -hmm. And um, spending an inordinate amount of money and thinking of, he had go bags everywhere, but just not yeah. one go bag, go bag in the truck, go bag here, go bag in the car. He had drinking yes. stores. He he was like the ultimate sort of Mad Max warrior ready to go. <laughs> he became yes. quite painful to be around. Yes. Because I think partly, you know, trauma, but he had everything. He could talk about almost nothing else. Yes. And he almost became non-functioning. Because yes. he became dependent on having the right gear at the right time with an easy reach. Yes. So there's this interesting thing I observed. Now, he's he's at the other extreme. Most of us try to have a first aid kit, though I guess that's even less these days. Yep. So how do you prep for the unknown? in a way that's affordable and sensible and allows you to live your life normally? Well, for me, uh, the prepping, the preps that I have uh, give me comfort of mind. I would rather have it and not need it than need it and not have it. And yes. I know that some people get obsessed. I mean, some people in, in you know, in the prepping community have like 30 years worth of food. Yeah. I can't argue with that. If that's, you know, if that's what they want to store, I can't say that, you know, that they won't need it because I can't foretell the future. Myself, personally, I have, you know, enough stockpile for a while, say. Um, certainly enough to do over a disaster of three weeks to six weeks, no problem at all. Um, 
But I, I understand what you're saying, Rodney, that some people, it becomes the be-all be and end-all of their lives. Like, they, they, that's it. It's just that. And I don't live my life like that. Like, I have interests outside. The prepping's just in the background. Make sure that if something happens, that my wife and I will be able to uh, get through the, the, the other side of it, if you like. Because often it's not really the disasters per se. It's always the aftermath, uh, yes. especially diseases. The diseases are just, you know, if, if aid doesn't come, it's usually diseases that do more damage people than, than the actual disaster. How do you um, which mean? Is why we have a lot of soap. Tell us about the disease. We'll get into it more and more, but just you mentioned diseases. I want to follow that up immediately. What diseases? Uh, so you've got dysentery is usually the, the first one that comes along from um, people not following proper sanitation, uh, which is why my we, we have a lot of soap on hand. That's your break. No matter what you're doing in the garden, as soon as you wash your hands before eating, that's the break. You don't you probably won't get dysentery if you're following good sanitation and good cleanliness. Typhoid's another one uh, from and it's from leeches or sorry lice. That's that's passed and that's usually from close uh, proximity. Maybe not so much in New Zealand now because people don't really carry a lot of um, lice on them. But certainly in other countries, if you're caught in other countries, uh, when a disaster happens, because it's not just here that it happens, it might happen when you're on holiday. Um, but generally, I would guard against sort of diseases like that, communally past diseases such as um, cholera is another one. Anything to do with, with people not maintaining good toiletry yeah. or sanitation is going to be the one. Then you've got secondary ones from other creatures like rats coming in. You know, you have the potential to pick up diseases from the Wells disease. Uh I'm having rat-uring on open cuts. I know this is all good to be prepared, but it's a bit dark, isn't it, to be talking like this? Oh, I I don't think so, Rodney. I think think dark and light is a perspective. You know, my wife says a lot that, you know, um, when I talk about certain things, she she would say to me, you know, that's bum out or whatever, blah, 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 but I don't see it as that. I I always I always believe what Newton said: fortune favors the prepared mind. So if mm. we're prepared for these things, whenever stuff happens, then you're in a position to uh, ride it out. Yes. And I don't think they're darker. I mean, it, it's it's not a question of if; it's a question of when it's going to happen. And mm. these disasters. And I. Disasters, yes, they are disasters for families, and my heart goes out to them, but they're events, and the events just keep happening. They have happened since the dawn of time, and they're going to keep happening. So, And, and of course, what's, diff- best- what's different now, Simon, is when I think back to my parents' day, you know, getting married in the late 1940s and the 50s and the 60s and living rurally, they were by their nature extremely resilient and by their technology 
they were amazingly, if you like, prepared and independent because they grew food. 100%. They knew how to kill a cow. They knew how to do sanitation. Yep. They had outside toilets. Um, now we live in an urban environment, even rurally. We're basically living in urban. We flush a toilet and we expect it to disappear somewhere. Um, <laughs> yep. We turn a tap on and we expect clean, drinkable water to run out of it. We push a switch and expect um, to warm the house. And we pick up a phone and expect to be able to contact the entire world and get information. And what I've discovered is you get a Christchurch earthquake, you can't contact anyone. Yeah. You don't have clean a lot water. of people that I a lot of people I talk to um after these events give me tips and hints. And the first one was the Christchurch earthquake. I had friends in that as well. And apart from the shock and disorientation is the first thing because it's surreal. When you're in events like that, it's surreal. Now I've never been in a major earthquake, but I've been in surreal events coming from Belfast. So the, sur the surreal events, I might be able to handle them a little bit better than most other people. Um, after that, then you get the practicalities. Yes. Um, kicking in. And what I, what I say to people now is if you, if you want an idea of what it would be like to have no power, no water, it's a really simple exercise. You just go out, turn your stopcock off at the front of your house for your water and you turn your electricity off for a weekend. And that will give you a good idea of what you will face when you have no water and no electricity coming into your house. Well, that that's that's extraordinary because the power goes off where I am regularly. And it's yes. the craziest thing because um, the lights go out and you think, oh, What's happened? I'll check on my computer. <laughs> <laughs> I'll turn on the TV to find out what's yeah. going on. Oh, hang on, no. And I yeah. haven't got that. And yep. then you think, oh, oh, well, I might as well make a cup of tea. Oh, I've got no yeah. power. <laughs> and all these things yep. um, that you take so much for granted, you don't even realize I don't even realize because it's such a, you don't even think about pushing a switch. You don't realize that your yes. Wi-Fi's down, your your PC's down, your jug's down. You can't boil water to keep it clean unless you've got a little camp stove. And and after yep. each, each of these events, I mean, I'm ashamed to admit this, but I didn't have a torch. Yeah. Yep. And, and, you know, yep. the first step, First step for me to be a prepper was to have torches. <laughs> have a torch. Absolutely. And if, if you get a torch, get a radio, because another piece of advice. So the pieces of advice of, of that I've, I've gleaned that are probably my top ones are have 20 litres of petrol on hand at any one time. Okay. Now, you talked about budget uh, prepping on a budget. You can do that but there's certain things that you may have to, uh, in your budget, 
do without, say, luxuries. If you're having luxuries in your budget, obviously, I'm just, you know, I don't know everybody's situations, but inside budgets, there's always room to manoeuvre. There's always room to manoeuvre in a budget. If you can, uh, have 20 litres of petrol on hand in your shed or your garage or whatever, because, uh, and some cash in the house, as much cash as you, you can afford to put away each week or whatever, even if it's only $2, you know, $2 a week over five weeks is 10 bucks. And the reason for that is because as soon as the earthquake happens or a major event happens, is you've got no electricity, the ATMs and the petrol pumps go down. So you can't get any of those two. And what you want is cash on hand of your little dairy down the road to get whatever uh, goods they still have on hand, milk, butter, whatever it is, just for the next three or four days. And your well, cash, petrol, just, just you picking can, up, if I may, each point, Simon, and this is wonderful because this is like easy stuff um, yep. for us to get ahead around. But it would be pretty amazing nowadays how many households have no cash. We need cash. We need cash. We and no one, and no one, views. yeah, no Sorry, one would my have own personal views. We, we yes. can't go to a central bank digital currency. Digital currency is just insane. As I say, a major event, you're not getting anything. You're not getting information. If you're all on your phone, you're not getting information in. You're not getting cash. You're not being able to travel. You're not getting any of those. You need cash in a society for those occasions when all that system goes down. And the more high-tech your system is, the more fragile it is. Yes. So cash, petrol. How much petrol yes. should you have? And how? I know yes. petrol goes off. How long can you keep it? Um, I generally rotate mine out about once every two to three months. I'll just take the 20 litres, pour it into our vehicle, and then go and fill it up again. So yeah. effectively what you're doing is <clears throat> you're using the petrol. You're just offsetting the cost of it, if that yes. makes sense. Like you're still going to use that $20, $20 yeah. worth at some stage. You're just offsetting it. Yeah. And the reason that you have petrol for is for two reasons. Uh, one... That's no, actually three reasons. One, you can get into your car, turn it on, and get warm if you're in the middle of a winter or a storm or something like that, and that will yes. warm you up. You can sleep in it. It's also if your house is wrecked, it, it forms a, a barrier and a, and a shell around you. It gives you that protection. You can charge your phone in it when it's running, so you're keeping yourself warm and you're charging your phone at the same time, and you can turn on the radio to get information coming in. Because when I spoke to people who were affected by Gabriel, Gabriel, uh, one of the things that they, they, one of the things that heightened their fear, and that's what we want to do is reduce fear. It's one of the reasons I prepped, because it, it, not that I fear, I don't fear anything. I walk with faith in life, not with fear. Um, one of the things that I discovered talking to people was that they had no incoming information about what was happening, what was being done to alleviate their situations. 
Um, so that's a, an important link in your communications is not just communication out, but communication coming in. And if you don't have a car, then obviously you don't need the petrol. You could just keep a couple of batteries and a little transistor radio for that to get that information coming in. I mean, that's another thing, right? I haven't got a radio. Yep. I wouldn't even know how to turn my radio on and I mean in my car and find us you know I'm I'm not kidding I wouldn't know how to I mean I never thought of it like cuz oh I can't be bothered listening to the stupid news and yeah um, yep. but if there was a disaster you're quite right and of course you think oh well I'll go on the internet but you know the cell towers can be knocked out yeah knocked out yep 100% and that's what you have to factor in is... I'm going to have to tune my radio relying. in my car to the national program for a change. No, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, it is. Any, <laughs> any information coming in would be, you know, good information in, in that in that instance. So, you know, I, I have a couple of radios. I have, obviously, a car and whatever else and petrol on hand. Uh, and cash and on, this uh, is a little bit of cash. So. This is interesting, right? Because you don't have to be all in, like my friend, to get through three days to a week, right? So what we've established, what we've established is, it costs you no money to keep some petrol or diesel on hand because you're cycling it. It costs you no money to have cash in the house or in your wallet. It costs you next to nothing to have a radio with charged batteries. Um, mm -hmm. It costs you next to nothing to have a couple of torches. Yep. It'll cost you next what to, are the to have water. water yeah, water. So I, after, I, I would say a lot of preppers, almost every prepper will put water first. I'm in two minds on this, whether to put water or first aid first. Um, you last a lot longer. You last a lot longer with no water, up to three days with no water, than you will with a main artery or, or a, you know, a wound bleeding out from an injury caused through the event. So, you know, take that as you may. I know. I know preppers will disagree on that, but first aid, I think, is very important. It costs next to nothing to learn first aid. You can go mm. into a charity shop and buy a first aid book for two bucks or three bucks. Um, tell me, tell me about, health. tell me about the first aid because, like, I've always had a first aid kit, but yes, to be, and I've done a first aid course, and I've forgotten it all because yes. it was when the kids were little. And I have yes. to say, I actually saved a life because something someone choked in front of me literally two days after I'd done the course, and I knew exactly yes. what to do. Heimlich. Yes, and the Heimlich maneuver. Yeah. Yes. Yep. And I yep. almost and I didn't hesitate because I'd come fresh off the course, but I all I actually need to do it again because if the same yes. situation presented itself, I wouldn't be ready. You know what I mean? It's not yeah. top of mind. Hundred percent. So, and then the second 100%, thing is, Rodney. my first aid kit is sort of like band aids and insect repellent, <laughs> and you know, it's not. 
oh, God, I'm bleeding out of my main artery. I need to apply a tourniquet. Yeah. Uh, that's the main one right there. Is exactly what you just mentioned, the tourniquet. Look online and find out how to use a tourniquet before you need to, because that one will save your life. I know that the last first aid course that I went on, uh, they don't recommend tourniquets anymore, but um, the military still do. Uh, okay. The military, they actually designed a proper uh, self-administrating uh, uh, tourniquet that a soldier can put on themselves if they're bleeding out, and it's the number one thing that's saving soldiers' lives. Interesting. Or one of the main things that's saving So I shouldn't say the number one, that's just what I've heard. Um, so yes, learn how to use a tourniquet. Um, and I think for most most occasions, your first aid kit's going to be fine. Um, but just for people who are caught up that, that one, maybe a tourniquet yes. for 10 or 15 or 20 bucks, or even just understand how to use a tourniquet with a belt or something like that, or a piece yes. of a Velcro strip or something like that. Just understand the principles of it so yes. that you can apply it. Because part of, part of prepping is, and I think this is where your friend and I would disagree, I don't need every gadget for every situation or every piece of equipment for every situation. Part of prepping is being able to use stuff just at hand to fix things. Yes. Uh, and one of the examples that I use for that is that um, there was a first aider I was talking to many years ago, and uh, somebody had a, a lung wound, and you have to try and cover the lung wound, and... They just got a piece of, uh, they put a credit card over the wound and then put a piece of cling film over the top of the credit card and that sealed the wound. Isn't it interesting? So a little bit of imagination and Kiwis are good at that with the Kiwi ingenuity. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of that inbuilt into people that they can just make connections really quickly. I can use this for this. And saying I'm that, Proper equipment, um, by all means, if you can yeah. afford it, go and buy it. I'm For loving the birds. I'm loving the birds in the background, Simon. Oh, can you hear them? Yeah, they're cool. beautiful. Cool. Um, I'm just out in um, my, um, my garden at the moment. Ah, it's so delightful. Now, tell me about water. How do I keep water? Well, water should store quite well. It's treated properly, and it comes in treated from your tap. So it's got um, chlorine in it to stop all your bugs and pests and your viruses and everything else. So it's pre-treated out of your tap. And if you just grab those and there's no light coming into them, they should be good to go for up to six months. I okay. rotate ours out every three months. So I just I fill up, and I have on hand a minimum of about 120 litres, and that's just drinking water. It's just for us to drink in the house. And we rotate through that. So a bottle gets emptied, and we actually fill them at Petone. We get our water from the Petone aquifier. Or is it pure water? If it's pure and water, is it a problem? It will, pure water will last three months standing, no problem. Okay. 
Yep. Not a and problem. We have, probably, it, we have probably done up to four or five months on some okay. occasions with the water. The yeah. thing about water, Rodney, is you need to keep it out of sunlight okay. as much as possible because it's the sunlight that allows bacteria and algae to grow inside the water. Okay. Um, so if you haven't got that and you have to drink dirty water, then there's various means that yes. you can do to purify that water. You can yeah. you can strain it and then boil it. And I would always recommend boiling. There's okay. various uh, tablets that you can get from camping shops that under yeah. 20 bucks will purify or kill uh, bacteria and viruses inside the water, uh, in mm. which case then you just need to strain it. And you can just strain it through a, a cloth or something like that, like a towel, tea towel. As long as it's clean. What about uh, what about that way? What about going to the toilet? Going to the toilet, um, I would recommend that you try and dig a hole, either a reasonable distance from the house or as far from the house as you comfortably want to walk on a rainy night, and you use the use the long drop as they used to be called. Yeah. Only this will be a short drop. Yeah. So you just have uh, a hole there. Do you dig the hole after the emergency or do you dig the hole in preparation? I would dig the hole after it. That's yeah. what I would do. I would just okay. dig the hole after it. Um, what about then... And then... Sorry, carry on. Uh, uh, so there's, there's that, or you can use a bucket and store them yeah. in buckets if you think it's only going to be three days or five days. Yeah. Until you know your sanitation systems come back on hand, or you can you can go for uh, number ones somewhere like the lemon tree. Yeah. And number twos solids can go into a bucket with a bag, and then if you can get a fire going safely, you can just take the the paper bag that is. You can take the paper bag out with the solids in it every night and just throw it on the fire and burn it, and okay. that'll kill and that'll just destroy all. All back to I think it's sixty degrees, okay. sixty degrees C or higher in human feces will will kill uh, any bacteria or viruses or anything in, in your in your feces. Okay, what and then about... the great thing about that method is that can go straight onto your garden. Yeah, as fertilizer because there's poos rich in potassium and, and various other yes. byproducts. What about? Um bodily cleanliness. You've got your drinking water, but you've just done a wet number wipes. two, wet wipes. So yep. lots of wet uh, wipes. So you you could wet wipe antibacterial wet wipes, or if you have soap like we do, you can just use um, boiled rainwater. So you could boil rainwater for uh, washing your hands uh, and washing your body as well. Okay, because you don't want to be eating into your drinking water for a uh, Absolutely uh, not. What so if we have about four hundred, eight hundred liters of rainwater on the property that will be used for uh, washing water. dishes after it after it's boiled? So it needs to be strained and boiled, but that'll be fine for even in an emergency. If you have something like a life straw, yeah. you could literally just stick the life straw into one of the the outside. Uh, water tanks and, and just drink the water from it. 
What you're saying, what you're, what you're teaching me, Simon, is it's actually just being a little systematic, and it's not a huge convenient inconvenience. All that you've explained so far, unlike my friend whose life revolves around being prepared for an event. <laughs> um, yeah. I keep I tease him. I tease him a little because I come up with more and more fanciful scenarios that he's got to rush off and prepare for. Tell me, um, what about food and the cooking of food? Um, various ways. I have various systems to cook food. First and foremost, I've got a, a wood-burning stove, which would yeah. be my first port of call if the house is wrecked and that's underneath uh, timber, or you have to move in with a flood to higher ground, then you can just grab a cheap gas stove. I think they're about yeah. 30 bucks from yeah. various DIY stores. And a packet of four gas canisters are about seven. So uh, for 50 bucks, you could get your gas stove and about four packs of four cans, and that should be enough to boil your water, cook your food, especially if your food's easy to prepare, like chunky soups. That's all you need. If you're if you're going for three days, so there's a there's kind of rules in, in prepping. And I don't know where these rules come from. I mean, they're not really rules, I would say they're they're sort of standards. We'll call them standards. So your first standard is three days worth of food and water and then move that up to three weeks worth of food and water. And then three months and then a year. That's what you're aiming for. So they're, they're your steps. Now, your friend would probably be in that category where he's doing years or whatever. Um, and again, I can't knock him for that. If that's what he believes for a play to him, go for it. Absolutely yeah. go for it. Because I don't know this. what this world's going to, you know, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow in this world. There could be a Carrington event which is a solar flare from, from the sun. Um, I think it was in the late 1800s. They call it the Carrington event because it was recorded in Carrington, America, but it blew out electricity lines. It blew out, or not, sorry, telegraph lines. Uh, it interrupted the telegraph information wow. system that started fires along the lines. And there's a lot of chit chat in the in the prepper community that if there was another Carrington event, that it might take years for our civilization as it is, so reliant on computer systems which are quite fragile, to actually recover from that to get the infrastructure back in and everything else. So I can't say that preparing for a year or two years is wrong, and you just got to follow your own gut feeling. But bringing it back to uh, disasters, uh, certainly three days worth of food, and that can just be beans, chili beans, baked beans, whatever you want, or it can be tins of soup. Yeah, something that's quick and easy to cook. And what about um, keeping? Well, I suppose you you've got your fridge and your freezer, say. What do you do with perishables? Do you quickly eat them, throw them away? What happens there? Like yeah, uh, I'd I'd have a party for the neighbourhood. That's what I'd have. Yeah, freezer party. 
So yeah. everybody gets fed on the on the first day really, <laughs> really well. You know. Um, and then it's baked beans and soup. And then <laughs> baked beans and soup. I I tend to stay away from noodles. A lot of people pack noodles in like there's no tomorrow, but noodles have very, very little nutritional value um to them. You can add nutritional value, obviously, if you go out into your garden and, and you have, you know, kale or mustard or um, parsley, uh, wild foods like plantains and dandelions can go into it. They can actually just go into anything to supplement your, your um, vitamins and minerals as well. It's interesting, isn't it? Because um, I've become a mad baker. And I bake a yes. lot, and I buy my flour yes. 300, 300 kgs at a time. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot of baking, Rodney. That's a lot of baking. I bake every day. And I've now learned, on you. I've now learned how to bake on a charcoal fire. Brilliant. So I, I Drops, cons, and stuff like that. Yeah, I, and I can bake bread yeah. on a charcoal. And I've learned how to make charcoal. Yes. And then I realized I didn't have much salt. Because <laughs> yes. I, yes. I thought salt 300 kgs one. of flour, man, that's a lot of bread. But then I realized within a, 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 a three weeks, I'd be out of salt. So, um, and of course, salt's the easiest thing to keep. Yeah. But it's, it's non perishable. It's like honey. Yeah. If you keep salt and honey, they'll never go off. Yeah. Um, and olive oil, I worked out because I love butter. And but I can get by yes. on olive oil, and I thought, well, olive oil will keep because I'm starting to think down this track, and I've missed so many things um, in the in the past, and it's that dreadful feeling. I was, I went to Christchurch just after the earthquake and went downtown, and I was scared you know, with officials going through yes. the city. It scared the living daylights out of me because I thought something could fall on me. And they gave us yes. a hard hat. And I said to the guy, what use is this if a brick falls on my head? He said, nothing. <laughs> <to eat."> but, <laughs> um, it, 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 you know, one of those funny things, I've always wondered about a hard hat. I mean, it would stop a small stone, but if a brick falls on your head, you know, having a yep. little hard hat isn't going to help. Anyway, I went back to Newmarket where my office was and I was walking down Newmarket and everyone was just going about their business and I'd seen this devastated city and I just transported it to Newmarket. And I thought, yeah. you, got, you, you just look, I just looked at the world differently. But I have to say, because I didn't go through the earthquake, Within six months or a year, I just parked it and got on with my life and forgot about that potentiality. Yeah, yep. and that's the issue. I mean, you, you don't you don't have to. With I think the problem with people is that they see things and they go, "Oh, yeah, it's never going to happen to me." Whereas I realize that I'm nothing special outside of being, you know, a person and an existence and observing whatever. But it's just as likely to happen to me as it is to anybody else. Yes. Because that's the world that we live in. Yes. 
it's the world we live in. Everybody thinks that, you know, and, and I say this quite regularly to people, everybody, a lot of people, I shouldn't say everybody, a lot of people think that the world is all, yeah, rainbows and unicorns. And I look at the world as tectonic plates and meteor strikes. That's, you know, they're the biggest shifts in, in our entire history has come through tectonic plates, volcanoes, and yes. um, meteors. They're the biggest environmental shifts in our history. And there's no reason why a meteorite won't strike our Earth in two weeks' time uh, as big as the dinosaurs. As yeah. the one that, uh, you know. And it doesn't even need to be that big. It just needs to be big enough to alter the geopolitical power around the world. Mm. It just needs to be big enough to throw that little bit of ash, dirt, and whatever else up into the atmosphere. Because we've just experienced it over the last nine months with that. Is it the Hunga Tonga Hunga Pape volcano that went off at Tonga? And the weather that we have had, and this is just my own personal view, all that ash goes up, it has to come down somehow. Mm -hmm. And my yeah. understanding of uh, weather is that when there's dust particles or dirt in the the atmosphere, moisture clings to it and cleans it out by rain. So that's why we have had this terrible summer. It's just that volcano going off and the atmosphere cleaning itself. But what that has an effect, and that wasn't even near us, that effect on New Zealand is people dying from floods, businesses you know wrecked, uh, food production down. So even if you've prepped a little bit and food production goes down, it allows you to uh, travel through that event relatively unscathed. It mm. also means that, and I noticed this in, in the COVID lockdowns, as soon as we were locked down, I was actually home that day and I just nipped up to the supermarket to get a couple of extra things, Not you know, no, nothing major. And within 15 minutes, the whole car park was full of people and they were just like locusts. And they just came in and they scalped everything. And what that does is those panic buyers, when they go in and they buy up all the bread, all the toilet paper and all the milk, the old age pensioner that can only afford a loaf of bread and a pint of milk per week can't buy those no. because she can't stockpile them. So prepping actually takes away that pressure of people who haven't prepared. They can go in and get whatever they need or, or you know, whereas you have already got it, you take that pressure off old age pensioners and everything else that can only afford to live week by week. The heading on to a little sensitive topic. Mm -hmm. My prepper friend got to the point where once he was all secure, his worry became other people. Yes. Yep. Um, yep. They're called they're called um, werewolf preppers in in, yes. in prepper speak. People who will come in or marauders or you know they're just thieves. People who will come in and take your stuff off you. It's, yeah. Yeah. You're going to ask me how do you deter those people? No, well I am, but like I'm not asking <laughs> you. I'm not. I'm not asking you to get. Um, yes, I am. 
how do you detect? Yeah, okay. Well, how, how do you say? Look, I was shocked by COVID. Yes. I never thought I would witness the behaviour that I saw in my neighbours and my friends. Yes. The vitriol and the nastiness, the discrimination that you have to do this or else. I had known that it happened in history. I had yes. thought that we had but got you'd to never a, experienced it. I thought we'd got to a point in time and into a place where we would all respect each other. And to witness that, that it could happen overnight, shocked me. And I now look at people differently because I know they can all smile at you and say good morning when things are going well. But when things are going badly, uh, like at the supermarket to get toilet paper, (laughs) they would trample over you and an old aid pensioner. Yes to get what they felt they would need. Yep, to get what they felt they were entitled to, is the yes. way I would put it, Rodney. Yes. Because there's, you know, there's a wider thing there that you're touching on in society about entitlement, um, that I'm more entitled to that than you are, and I'm going to hurt you to get it. And, I, and I've seen it. I read a book, just as a side note, on human behaviour, Um. And we have seen it. You look at any, you know, you look at any disaster where people are. Uh, I shouldn't say any disaster, but a lot of people, it's all about self-preservation. And prepping is about, at the heart of it, self-preservation. You're just doing it, I believe, in a smarter way. Yeah. <clears throat> so how now, do you protect yourself? <clears throat> how do you protect yourself well, from more? There's various ways. First and foremost, is you don't do what I'm doing right now. You don't put a big flag out on a radio station saying that you're <laughs> that you're a prepper. You just do it quietly. I'm just yep. doing this because I feel that I need to talk to other people about it to yep. make them aware uh, and and give them guidance if they want it on how to go about it to start. Mm. Now, there's various ways that you can protect yourself and your family if if. You know, I, I've done martial arts in the past and I would highly encourage anybody to go and take up a martial art. The one that I think is the best one at the moment, although I haven't participated in it because I just haven't got around to it, is jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Mm-hmm. And if you want an example of that, just watch the first two years, I think it is, of the Ultimate Fight Contest when it first started. And Indeed. the winner of that was a, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Hoist Gracie. Yes, exactly, Rodney. That's the one, Gracie. Now, if you know him and any of the listeners know him, you'll know he was one of the smallest competitors in there, one of the smallest and latest competitors in there. And he was taken down, world champion karate uh Kickboxers and all the rest of it, because and and I might add he knew, the Irish, he knew what he was doing. The Irish wrestler. Yes. Yep. And I, I, all, I know all this because. All, sorry. No, go ahead. You know this. I know all this because, by chance, um, my school primary school age children have all taken up jujitsu and have done it for three years. Brilliant. Brilliant. And then get I me have, around to your house. 
Yeah, I have to say, more than the ability to break a hold and run away or to put someone down and hold them, it's their mental attitude that it has changed. Because what what I've noticed, and you'll know this for martial arts, I've never done it, but I've noticed that they get into a very, very awkward position uh, rolling where they're very uncomfortable, a kid's got them around the neck and they're getting locked up and it's, it's you know, they're struggling to start struggling to breathe. Well, when that first happens, you panic. But yeah. you quickly learn, my kids have learned now not to panic, to get what air that you can and to solve the problem. And I have so loved that. I have noticed that that has translated into their everyday living. Like, you know, we take them tramping and it gets cold and wet and they don't they don't need to give up because they know they can yep. get through. And that's yeah. that resilience that you need, not just in terms of food being on hand, but actually a mental attitude that says, I will get through this. Yes. And you've hit, you've touched on the main core, I believe, of prepping is problem solving, right? Mm-hmm. All I'm doing is giving myself by prepping is extra things to solve problems with when they they come up. Just touching back on cooking, uh, I also have a outdoor fire called an Oz pig uh, for cooking on, and that can be used with just solid wood. So so wood. So because my property is is quite wooded, I have a a reasonable amount of trees. I have a lot of small branches on hand that I can just feed that, and it is very, very fuel efficient. You can not just cook on it, but you can actually get heat from it as well. It's it's a great little. So if anybody's looking online, it's a bit expensive. But like you, Rodney, what I want to do is expand into baking as well. Yeah. So... I can fit on top of the Oz pig an oven. An oven comes separate from that so that I can actually make my own bread when, when the grid's down. Mm. Now, tell me, um, Simon. Oh, sorry, if, sorry. Yes. One, one last thing, Rodney, about protection. So the jiu-jitsu is non-violent because it actually uses somebody's aggression against them. You, your, yes. your kids would know that, that... The they don't have to, to. They don't to have get. to hurt the other person. They can just subdue them. A hundred percent. It's non-lethal as well. Yes. And speaking of non-lethal deterrents, um, now this came to me quite recently, and I thought this was a great idea. If you want a non-lethal deterrent, although it, it can be lethal, but not intentionally lethal, uh, is a fire extinguisher. Oh, tell me. Mm. So a fire extinguisher is a ranged weapon. You'll get two or three, maybe even four meters out of a fire extinguisher. And if anybody's being aggressive towards you, you can use that to calm them down a bit. What do, what effect does it I have on an aggressor? What does it effect does it have well, on it, an aggressor? It takes the oxygen away from them and it gets in their eyes, so ah. they'll not be able to breathe and they'll not be able to see. And I'm not condoning and I'm not telling anybody no, no. to use that. I'm just saying that that is um, something to think about because it is 
as you say, it's it's not like a knife, it's not like an axe, it's not like a cudgel. Or a gun. And, or a gun. Um, and somebody who has that, as you say, if you're nimble, and that comes back to health and fitness, if you, if you start that and you get health and you get fit, um, you can, you know, dodge, stay the distance while um, discharging a fire extinguisher. Yeah. Right. Now, tell me this, Simon. Listeners that are interested, where can they go to learn the list that we've run through for basic prepping? Well, there's there's various sites, and I would recommend the one that I really like because he's, he's really um, analytical in his breakdown of these things is one called City Prepping. City Prepping, C-I-T-Y. City, that's it, City Prepping. And he is really, really analytical about what he does. Very analytical about the mm. threats. Now, it's an American-based one. And, um, you know, obviously they have uh, similar threats in environmental and stuff like that. But there's a whole wealth of knowledge on this guy's channel. And right. to me, he's one of the best. He's one and of the is, best ones that I've seen on the channel. Is that a web page or Telegram? How do you find City Prepping? Uh, YouTube. If you just YouTube City Prepping, right. you'll be in. Okay, it. great. Simon also, Fleck. Yes. Civil, civil, civil Defence. Civil Defence is, is a great place to go to to just run through your checklist. Right. Torch, batteries, radio, food, so forth and so on. Isn't it funny that we have lost so much of like a radio yeah you know yeah. um yeah. we always had transistors and yeah. i wouldn't know where to go for one um it's amazing it, look it's a wonderful thing and um i enjoy I'm just on yes yeah, me too, Rodney. Thank you. If you have any questions or your um, listeners have any questions and you want me to come on and have another talk about questions that you get back, feedback that you get, happy to do it. Right. Well, we'd love to have you back, Simon. And I thank you because um, unlike my friend, you presented it in a way that I believe now I'll go out in the next couple of days, um, I'll be prepared that I could go three to five days, if you know what I mean, without yeah. any, without, yeah. without breaking a sweat, without breaking a sweat. I do, Rodney. I, I, I get that there is, and I see a lot of people who are way down the rabbit hole. And yeah. again, I can't say they're not correct. No, but nor can me, I. And I got to tell you, it's hardly a rabbit hole I see that I don't feel like jumping down and having a look. <laughs> well, maybe we need to have maybe we need to have a talk, Rodney, about you know just talks about things because I'm exactly the same. And <laughs> you know, I I find it hard to find people who, you know, I have a couple of friends that are well informed about all sorts of things. We don't agree on everything, uh, and it's not just prepping; it's about all sorts of of other topics. Um. Yeah. So if if you want to have a chat, by all means, just right. you know let me well, know or. Yeah, because we, we live in an age where the maddest things have come to pass. 
hundred percent, but they're nothing new. Nothing new. They've all been They've done before. All been done before. They've Simon Flick. Done. I'm actually. Yes. Yes. They've all been done oh, before. Sorry, I was just going to say, I'm, I'm just looking at the history of the um, East Indies Company. Yes. And the similarities between that company and what's going on around the world today. If you haven't looked at that, have a look into that. You'll, oh, you'll see parallels to what's... Yeah, it's real interesting. Really interesting. Mm. Right, I will. Simon anyway. Fleck. That was Simon Fleck helping us to think about everyday little adjustments that we can make. Clearly doesn't cost a lot of money. Clearly doesn't take a lot of effort. But boy, should we get blocked into Queenstown and get cut out without power? Very, very handy. Because from you know, we realize it's not just us that we need to be looking after, it's our kids and our families and our immediate community. So thank you, Simon Fleck. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, radiocheck.radio. If you've got any prepping questions, please send me a text, 2057. Email me, inbox at radiocheck.radio. What a wonderful talk that was. What a wonderful man Simon was because it was something that I could follow. It wasn't like i got to go out there and build myself a shelter to survive a nuclear holocaust or something. It was just everyday things like, I'm going to get a transistor. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Oh, we're getting to the good bit. We're getting to the good bit. You're on Really Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And, oh, I'm at my mailbag, my favorite part of the show. I love having the guests along. That's true. But I do like feedback. From listeners, oh, I'd love to have talk back so you could ring me up. Maybe one day we will. How cool would that be? Because I think the interaction is important because I feel as though we have an engaged and smart and intelligent audience that know more oftentimes than our guests and always more than me. <laughs> and so it'd be lovely to have you involved in the show. Uh, here we go. Uh, hi, Rodney. I recall your very first interviews with Voices for Freedom with the girls, and you were quite shy and not too sure if you wanted to say too much. That sounds like me. You're out and about with the whole truth now. Good man. Oh, thank you for that. Uh, here we go on Brian Tamaki, Fiona. Rodney, will you ask him about the vaccine clinic allowed to be set up on one of his properties and if he received any funding for this? Sue Gray was supposed to investigate that, but I have yet to see the outcome. Well, funny enough, Ali Cook that we had on the show gave us the outcome. Uh, she looked into it with Sue, and it turned out it was just testing stations that they had. Um, I'm mesmerized listening to Brian Tamaki, a storyteller par excellence. I get it now. My goodness, wasn't he a great storyteller? You can see why he does what he does. Hello, Rodney. I used to be a born-again evangelist. Uh, Brian prayed over me about 20 years ago. I disowned God a year ago now, but for the first time in years, I'm being moved by this interview. Well, how wonderful is that? Linda, thank you, Rodney, for having Brian Tamaki on your show. I've never heard his testimony before, but it was very powerful. I was truly moved by it, like you. So refreshing to hear him speak from his heart, a wonderful example to men. Yes, indeed. Hi, Rodney. This is from Linda. Oh, it's another Linda. I, like you, didn't know him and tended to go with what the MSM said. I changed my mind when friends of mine met him and I found out more about Hannah and Brian. Thank you so much, Rodney. 
Peter, tears rolling, Rodney. I thought your speech at the protest was the speech of your life. So glad I didn't vote yesterday. Freedoms now has mine. God is doing something amazing in our country. Thank you. Gillian, hi, Rodney. Thank you for having Brian Tamaki on your program. Great conversation. I've gone from adverse to being moved by historian service. God bless you both from Annie. Hi, Rodney. People need to watch on YouTube the three-part series on the Maritime Safety Scott Watson documentaries. Great interview with Brian Tamaki. Might change my vote. Heidi said, Kira Rodney, glad to hear your interview with Brian Tamaki this morning. I was really moved hearing his personal biography. And journey to where he is today. I couldn't stop listening, even when I had other things to do. With many thanks and blessings to you both. Kay, I really enjoyed Brian Tamaki's testimony. What a wonderful radical change in his and Hannah's lives. Wasn't it just? Just just amazing. And the heroine out of that story was Hannah to me. I so admire what God has done for so many through them. My views of Brian were colored by the media, but in recent years, I've seen very clearly he is the real deal. Thank you, Brian and Hannah. Rodney, your show with Brian Tamaki should be one of the best shows on Rally Check Radio. Thanks for your honesty too. Amazing listening to your journey. Oh, and remember we interviewed Jack Marshall Lee, the university student, the residential assistant. Love the interview with Jack. Very refreshing indeed. Some normality still exists out there. Praise the Lord. Wow, definitely, Jack. Parents should be incredibly proud of that young man indeed. He had me mesmerized and very grateful that my son, who is 19 years old, did not aspire to go to university. Thank you, Jack, for sharing all your insights. You had me in tears at one point. The gender thing we have going on is alarming, to say the very least. Stay strong, Jack. You're amazing. Thank you, Rodney. A wonderful interview with a young man, Rodney, with such amazing people we have in this country. Why is our bureaucracy, councils and government so full of so many rubbish people destroying our country? Yeah. They clearly carefully select them and then mould them. Carol said, listening to the interview with Jack, so great to know where, that there are young men like this still around. From Roe, great interview with Jack, who's an exceptional young man, but I'm gutted for him that his university experience hasn't been a positive one. I was so lucky my son made it through just before this woke madness took hold. I'm sure it won't hold him back, though. People like Jack always find a way to succeed. Regards. From Mark. Hi, Rodney. Brilliant interview with Jack. How encouraging he is in our future. Love RCR, too. Regards. And from Jane. Oh, my goodness. Rodney's interview with Jack Marshall Lee both horrified me and lifted my heart at the same time. Our oldest son is second year at Otago University, and our youngest is about to follow in his footsteps. We are continually shocked at the other BSA encounter with Woke Agenda after Woke Agenda. Isn't that extraordinary? How enlightening to hear Jack discuss his lived experience in this indoctrination and to be able to clearly see it for what it is. I hope and pray our two sons continue to have the courage and conviction to stand up to this craziness like Jack has. Just amazing. Well done, Jack, and well done to his mama and papa. Indeed, his mama and his pup did a great job with Jack. Siliquoi. Rodney, you're doing well. Does the mass vaccination exempts and debacle get enough airplay? No, it doesn't. It should be Labour's downfall. Yes, they should have gone much further down. Should be a reason for pulling all vaccines, reinstating staff and compensating the injured. Timely with an election, but not getting media attention. Shows the need to replace them too. Absolutely. The legacy media and the legacy polit political parties have all failed us. Oh, remember we interviewed Erica Harvey, who sadly did not get into Parliament standing for New Zealand first. Too high on the list? No, too low on the list. Not enough votes. 
she was wonderful. I feel compassion for this woman, but I was not afraid of the vaccines. I was skeptical and later informed. Does she consider how her daughter came to be autistic? That's a good question. Hi, Rodney. Please tell Erica I think she's amazing, and I truly hope she gets in, and I'm voting for her. Thank her for being a voice of reason and trying to help make the world a better place. Yes, I felt for every candidate of those of um, that didn't get in, particularly with New Zealand First and in the smaller parties, the citizen parties. I actually, my heart bleeds for them because they were the real deal. Hey, Rodney, let your interviewee speak. Just turned on the radio to listen to her. Maybe get someone to interview you if you've got that much to say. P.S. Love your show. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, what an amazing woman Erica is. I'm voting for her in Tauranga electorate. Looking forward to her common sense representation in Parliament next time. Read Erica's interview. I'm sure uh, sure was something special, Rodney. And education is the differently wired for individual and families to do. Thanks so much for giving Erica airtime. Still undecided voter, but that interview notched one up for New Zealand First. We love the interview with Brian Tamaki. The way you got him off the eye and back to Hannah was genius. So wonderful to hear his story. He and Sue Gray are such worthy, seasoned heroes. I'm torn. Jacqueline Tiana. P.S. Glad to hear you're coming to visit the Tiana Freedom Friends in the future. Yes, I am. Tracy said, I have thoroughly enjoyed all of Erica's interviews on RCR, in particular her chat with Rodney. She was so open and genuine, sharing the highs and lows of her personal journey. What a remarkable, gutsy, resilient, intelligent woman. Erica is exactly the sort of human being we desperately need in our parliament. Rodney, I do appreciate and respect the amazing job you do. You have much to share and contribute, and oftentimes that's wonderful. However, sometimes I get frustrated when you, oh, I know what this is going to say, and I know I'm bad. It's like a bad habit. Oh, I've got to work on it. When you interrupt guests to share a story about your own life experiences, it can break the flow. And we often end up hearing more from you than the guest you're interviewing. It's a bad habit of mine. For the first three quarters of your chat with Erica, you were uncommonly quiet, for which I was grateful and pleased about. <laughs> as I was so absorbed in Erica's story, as was I. Riding the emotional wave of her journey, it was at that point one of your best ever interviews. And then... For the last quarter, you defaulted back to a usual style of interrupting her flow and talking about yourself. The transition was jarring. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I don't wish to sound too critical. You're not. You're being real. You're being honest. I'm merely offering my humble feedback as a grateful listener. I also listened to an interview with the wonderful Elizabeth Rada. One thing that struck me about both interviews was the somewhat abrupt endings. You never, you gave neither of them the opportunity to share any last thoughts or say thank you, goodbye. That would be much nice touch. Warmest regards. Thank you for both your suggestions slash criticisms. I can take it now. My confidence is growing. So send them in. And I have got a habit of sort of, it's an interesting thing about am I having an interview or a conversation? Sometimes I feel as I'm having an interview and then sometimes I feel it is a conversation and I haven't quite got that right clearly Bruce said uh, this is on Professor, Professor Elizabeth Rata Bruce said you need to research the principles of the treaty you'll quickly find out there are none indeed it's an open book check out Bassett Brash and Hyde you know this website Sandra Gaddy what treaty principles thanks keep that stuff up Rodney Harley said fantastic interview with Professor Elizabeth Rata today thanks so much Rob, Elizabeth Rada interview. That was amazing. 
What you and Elizabeth did was lend empathy to the tribalist beliefs and explain in depth how that has come about. Interestingly, if you use the same technique Elizabeth used, i.e. empathy, you could discuss why young people especially, but also the likes of anyone in the Greens Party, adamantly, absolutely, I have to say, believe that climate change and carbon emissions and CO2 and methane are interlinked. And there's a long uh, letter from Rob. I have read it, but I won't read it because it's long, but it's good. Tim said, love the recent conversation with Elizabeth Rada. Thank you, Rodney. Uh, there you go. Conversation, not interview. Isn't that interesting how to get that balance? I also think toxic femininity has something to do with this reinterpretation of the treaty and the rise of co-governments. Interesting. We should talk about this thing. Um, this thing. Toxic femininity. Is that a thing? I don't know. I listened to Rodney's interview with Elizabeth Rudd, although it started off talking about the principles of the two treaties. The following conversation gave a fascinating view. Thank you, Rodney and Elizabeth. Oh, politics explained. Glenn and Jenny said, my email to Rodney Hyde and voting for New Zealand all. After seeing what has happened to the candidates, including watching a New Zealand loyal video and listening to the political agenda discussion on the 6th of October, we changed our minds and chosen another party and put our vote in on Sunday, hoping they'll do the job. Please feel free to forward this on to Mr. Hyde, as I was also sent him an email to read the same subject. Hi, Rodney and team. If the voters had two party votes, first choice or second choice, I'd give the smaller parties much more chance of getting into power. Oh, that's a good idea. Apparently, if a minor party candidate wins his electorate, then once the wasted votes are distributed, his boosted political party might also get more MPs with the party list. Could you please ask Tane about this? I believe in the past the Maori party managed to get more people into parliament this way. Well, the Act Party did it when I won Epsom. So if uh, one member on your of your party wins an electorate, that breaks the 5% threshold. So if you get 3%, including a seat, then you are entitled to 3% of the MPs of our parliament. If you didn't get that seat, your 3% uh, parties would be essentially thrown in the bin. Uh, Alfred Naro, New Zealand. Hi, Rodney. Loved your interview with Alfred. So congenial interesting. Wouldn't you feel safe with him as PM? Yes, I enjoyed him immensely. Imagine how different Pike River would have turned out if he'd been PM. I don't know what that means. I think the Freedom Party people could be going from the frying pan into the fire with Luxon and Seymour, from tyranny to tyranny. God defend New Zealand. Aslan is on the move. Kind regards. Don't quite get that, Jenny. Send me an email to explain. There was mailbag, remember? I love it. I love getting your feedback. I want to receive your criticisms and your comments and your suggestions. I like to feel part of the community that's listening. And um, I need that interaction. Send me a text, 2057. Email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. This is Real Talk on Rally Check Radio with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for listening. Thank you for coming along for the show. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. Here on Rally Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, and we've got our regular uh, feature, Politics Explained, Back to Basics in the Political Sandpit with Tane Webster. Good morning, Tane. Good morning, Rodney. It's great to be well, here again. Oh, well, what do you got for me? What's What's been happening in politics? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, you already know, but I think a good question for this week would be, given recent events, 
what are the standards of behaviour required of MPs? Are, are, there, are there things written into the position? No. So for MPs, and this is quite a good thing, um, once you're elected, that's it. You're, you're an MP for the three years. Now, for memory, I don't think you can be declared bankrupt. Um, that puts you out of parliament. And there used to be a provision that you could be declared insane. I don't think anyone's ever had that. But apart from that, um, your behaviour is not something that anyone can do much about. Now, your caucus and your party leader under MMP can move to expel you and force you to go independent. And, of course, the significance of that is, is we have that Walker jumping bill that can see you thrown out of parliament. In the old days, they could just throw you out of the party and you'd sit as an independent. So MPs have free range. And I think this is important because it acts as a, as a great... Um, it gives MPs an ability to buck the party, and we don't see enough of that. Uh, MPs are too scared to buck the party, even as it is, even though they can. They won't. And you can imagine that um, you had too much to drink and you've been questioning things and the party leader gets to throw you out of the party on that basis. Um, well, they've got to follow a process to throw you out of the party and absent MMP, you don't go out of Parliament. That's why I oppose the Walker jumping bill, because I think it's wrong that a party leader can expel, essentially, an MP from Parliament, because it just entrenches the power of the leader. I'd much rather that they, you can kick them out of your party, but they stay in Parliament. It gets different. No, I should say, the standards of behaviour uh, that are maintained are maintained in the chamber. So when you're in the debating chamber, uh, there's a high level of decorum. So gentlemen have to wear a tie and a suit jacket. Um, I think that's been overdone by those um, crazies that have gone in and said wearing a tie is just too much for me. I love that because it just makes people respectful and better behaved when they get dressed up and sit in the chamber. Yeah. You can imagine it if everyone walked in in T-shirt and jeans and flip-flops, that it just doesn't have that institutional respect, that historical respect. You're walking there. You walk into the debating chamber and right around the wall on two rings, and I saw it every time I walked in and every time I was sitting there, I'd survey it. And it's a memorial, each one, to all the battles where Kiwis have fought and died. And it makes you stop and think because they literally fought and died so we could have a parliament mm. and mm. debate. And you respect that. You know, if you're sitting there in jandals and flip-flops and T-shirts, it would be terrible. Yeah, I uh, just a quick point on the, the, the suits and whatnot. I, I agree with that, although... I feel some of them just need to be a bit more creative. It seems like the 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 men in in parliament's either dark grey or navy. It's just there's no creativity there. I mean, don't want to wear anything too silly, but just a little bit more. You know, I'm sure there's was work to be done there. Now on the on the issue of code of dress or whatever you want to call it, 
What's the deal with that guy with the cowboy hat? What's the deal? Well, you were never allowed a hat. And he insisted it, and because he's Maori, he's special, I guess, and he was allowed to have a hat. You weren't allowed to wear a hat into Parliament. Even in the days when men wore top hats, I don't think you were allowed a hat. Um, and he's got it that you can't wear a tie. He's got some cowboy thing around them. He sounds seriously out to lunch. By the way, there's no dress code for women. Um, so a woman can go in. Famously, Ruth Richardson went in one time to vote in her tracksuit uh, late one night when they had an all-night sitting and caused a furore. Um, but she could, but a man couldn't. And there's other little funny rules about Parliament. You're, you're not to approach someone uh, within two sword lengths uh, because the Parliament's, they used to carry swords. And right, if you got within right. two sword lengths, they thought you might hit them. And um, so even now, you ask someone's permission to go and sit beside them and have a chat. Um, you don't just bowl up and sit beside someone and, you know, they could make a complaint to the speaker. Um, uh, but you are, you know, and there's, there's very strict rules. I asked the clerk, David McGee, he was the, he was a, Westminster, he was renowned right through the Commonwealth for his expertise and standing orders. And I asked him, what are all these rules for, Mr. McGee? And he said that they had to stop politicians talking. And it's quite funny because that's exactly what the rules do. You know, you could talk for 10 minutes, and now you shut up and sit down. You've had your say, and it's someone else's turn. So there are very strict rules in our parliament, and you can see that because you're debating things that are tough and hard. And... Um, so uh, you have to keep it respectful, even though you feel strongly about something and people are inflamed and impassioned. Um, now, with, with MPs too, um, we've moved in. We used to not even have to declare a pecuniary interest register, but now we do, as we've seen uh, with Mr. Michael Wood. Uh, so there is increasing obligations upon MPs. Different story when you get to ministers, but you've got a question. Yeah. Um, what? Oh, I've actually forgotten the question. We'll have to edit this out. That was me talking. Um, with ministers, though, completely different scenario. With ministers, there's a huge standard and code of conduct about what you are allowed to do and what you're not to do. You're bursting with a question, Tane. Yeah, when you're talking before about the rules of the code of conduct and whatnot, there is quite a bit of heckling that goes on. In Parliament? From opposition MPs. Yes. Um, well, both sides. That's up, to, that's up to the Speaker. And um, heckling is, is allowed, but... If you overheckle, the speaker will just shut you down. So you can't drown out a speech. Uh, and if the person speaking complains, the heckler will be uh, controlled to desist. Most MPs like a bit of a heckling because it sort of keeps everyone awake and on their toes. And there are some fantastic, fantastic heckles. Um, the greatest one of all time for handling heckles was David Longy and Sir Robert Muldoon. Um, I'm just thinking of one that I can recall was David Long was up speaking and um, someone called out that a thought had just crossed his mind. 
and David Long is not a very not a very long journey. Um, so you know, it's part of the fun of Parliament to heckle and and to speak up. I imagine it's got a bit um, doleful and joyless now. But the point is, when you become a minister, it all changes, and you're given a manual of rules, and they are very, very strict, and you get advised on them, and you get told about them, and there's no way that you can be ignorant of them. That's not a defense. And the reason that that has to be the case is because once you're a minister, you're in charge of a government department, probably several government departments, and their chief executive depends on you for their job. You can get them fired. And so you have the ability to influence a government department, to um, influence it to your business partners, to your family's advantage, um, to be a very, very bad, corrupt person without even realising it. Because if, oh, look, I've got a mate, could you just go and help this mate for me? Or I even I have a constituent and he needs help. You can't do that as a minister right? Because you're the one in charge. And so you're playing favourites. And so if you have a, a an electorate issue come to you uh, to do with your department, you pass it off to another MP to handle because you don't want to be caught in that conflict of interest. And it's also made very plain because you're a decision maker. You know, you're making decisions on laws that could mean millions and millions of dollars to people win or lose, uh, you're making decisions on um, that'll affect people's lives, you know, what's an essential business and not an essential business when COVID was going on. You're the minister, you're in the cabinet making those decisions, and of course it's very important that there be confidentiality and not giving someone a heads up about what's about to happen. Um, so as a minister, it becomes very, very significant, the standards of behaviour and it's also impressed upon you that you're a minister 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There's not a there's not a period when you're not a minister. You're sort of always a minister. We've seen a lot of fudging on that. Um, and it's quite a hard transition to make from being an MP where you're irresponsible. That is to say you're not responsible for anything other than speaking and maybe submitting a report in a select committee to being a minister where you're responsible for everything in your purview and you're also responsible for everything in the cabinet because you're a part of the cabinet. Um, and the behaviour that we've seen um, is truly shocking to me because I don't have a lot of respect for government and, and these things, but what we've seen is highly disrespectful to our country and to people, and I think that's been lost. Now, interestingly, the cabinet manual is enforced by the Prime Minister, and the Prime Minister decides whether someone's broken the rules or not, full stop. So it's not, there's no one else. So you could be in flagrant breach of the rules, and the Prime Minister say, oh, that's okay. Or you could be hardly in breach of the rules and the Prime Minister decide uh, that's unacceptable. And so the Prime Minister has absolutely, absolute power, tyrannical power over who is a minister and who is not.
And so when, just, when, when, when we see this with, um, what was the lady's name? I've forgotten it. Um, Alan, Terry Allen. Um, when we see that that behaviour, um, whether she stays as a minister or not, not as an MP or not, whether she stays as a minister or not is entirely on Mr. Hipkins. Um, I should say, I feel upset about this issue that the whole thing hasn't been explained to us. I think there should be, from the Prime Minister, because it's a minister, he should be ex up there explaining, and that would be the purpose of that debate, to explain exactly what happened. Because we don't know, and it's significant. Why? Because she's a minister. And we, we must know what she's, she's been exercising power in the cabinet. And we don't know what's happened. We don't know what the significance of this. We don't know where they're gone. Um, and that the prime minister can sort of not give an explanation other than our oh, mental health episode. Um, that doesn't get a government off the hook. That was a government minister, my goodness. And the fact that the media aren't probing this means that we have sort of like a closed shop. And here's what I reckon. I reckon everyone in the media and everyone in Parliament and everyone in the Cabinet knows exactly what happened. I suspect there's a lot more to it. But they're not going to tell us. And that's what you feel is happening now in our government and our Parliament. It's yeah, like, just there when you mentioned uh, media and their coverage of it. It just reminded me of something and I just did a quick Google search to, to confirm it. But there's an article from ABC News in Australia, which if you're not familiar is more of a left-leaning outlet over there. And the way they've titled the article is New Zealand Justice Minister Kerry Allen resigns after car crash while allegedly over legal alcohol limit. Is it allegedly? I, th I thought this was a known fact. Yeah, no. well, I, I thought it was a known fact. But we don't know whether she was alone in the car. We know that she didn't follow the police. Like, what was it? She refused to accompany the police. What was going on at that point? She's a Minister of Justice. At that moment, she is the Prime Minister's Minister of Justice. Now, the Minister of Justice refused to accompany the police. Why? What was going on? Where was she? We've seen that little video of the car crash and there's no police officer there, no Kerry Allen there, and it's still a dangerous situation. It was immediately following the accident, it would seem. No one was there. Where was she? Where were the police? What, what were the circumstances of this? And... I think there's quite a story there, and I think we're not being told because why? You're not allowed to ask questions. I understand she's not well, right? It's not good. But Prime Minister Hipkins, his Minister of Justice, has done, I don't know of anything worse in, ever in the private life or behaviour of a minister than what has just occurred. I realise they make decisions that are far worse right, as governments. But this is a shocker. There are, I couldn't imagine an MP refusing to accompany the police. What on earth were the circumstances?
And we deserve to know why. Because it's our government, not theirs. It's not the way it's being presented to us. There you go. I'm um, The behaviour of a minister is a big deal because they set the standard for the department. What are we saying to the Ministry of Justice officials now that, you know, the minister doesn't follow the rules? You don't have to either. Where, where's the Prime Minister and stating very clearly that he expects his ministers to follow the law and not be above it? This minister clearly thought she was above it. Thank goodness that the police didn't agree with her. Because the police could have just said, oh, yeah, let her go. She's a minister. That might be the next step. Sure, yeah. That's yeah. how serious this is. And, I mean, imagine it. Imagine it that you crash a car as a minister and the police say, oh, yeah, we won't worry about this. It's a minister. Correct? And they say, then they say, um, something really bad happens, money changes hands or whatever, oh, well, it's a minister. Because, again, our Prime Minister hasn't explained why our Minister of Justice was breaking the law. Because that's what's happened here. Hmm. On several fronts, it would seem. But yeah, we don't know. Yeah. There you it's go. That's politics explained. Um, oh, my goodness. It's a bad one, but it's bad in a way that is not being explained to us or being presented to us. It's not just a personal circumstance for the minister concerned or the private citizen now as concerned or the MP finishing out her term concerned. It's a big issue for how we are governed and whether our ministers are above the law and whether our government has to follow the law. Let's get that straight and let's get some full transparency about what was happening here. There you go. Totally. That was Politics Explained. You can see I'm a bit hot about this. I feel sorry for Kerry Allen because she's clearly, you know, got troubles. But I actually think there's a bigger picture here about our government. Uh, that was Tane Webster, Politics Explained. Send us an email, inbox at rallycheck.radio. Send us a text with your thoughts at 2057. I smell a big rat because when the government's not explaining something, they're hiding something. There you go. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you, Tane. Catch you later, Rodney. Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app, both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing, and the app is now live. You can visit the app stores direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything. From listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews, and checking out the latest blogs, all from the very same app. So get listening and download the RCR app now. Here on Rally Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, you can send me a text at 2057, email me inbox at rallycheck.radio. Well, with the elections come and gone, we've got a result, sort of, because it's MMP. Uh, what do I take out of it? Well, Labor got dumped. Uh, the Greens did well at Labor's expense, but became radicalised. Uh, they won three electorate seats, which is extraordinary. I think James Shaw's time is limited, and I think the Greens will go radical. 
with Chloe Swarbrook uh, taking a leadership position. Uh, Mary Party got a lot of seats, a lot of Mary seats. Radical. So the parliament has got two radical parties or parties that were radical becoming more radical uh, and stronger. Uh, the Labour Party, I think Chris Hipkins will go and they will become more left-wing. Chris Luxon actually didn't win in the sense that we think of him becoming Prime Minister because he has to get the ACT Party on board and New Zealand First uh, Party on board. And I think we're going to go through a period where that's going to take some time. And I suspect there'll be one party on board and one giving only confidence supply. And my pick would be that it'll be, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know which way that'll go. But I just can't see three parties sitting around the cabinet part, cabinet table uh, working constructively together. Um, I think Chris Luxon's got his work cut out. And I think we're going to be for a while working out uh, how it's all going to go under MMP with this coalition government. It's not obvious how to work, how what sort of deals be put in place. And I think people are going to quickly get disappointed because everyone was, it was being reported that sort of national had won. Um, that's not how MMP works. Um, one party just doesn't win. You have an election, you get a parliament, and then you've got to form a government. And I think there's going to be a bit of disappointment as it drags on, I suspect, over a few weeks. So what does it all mean? Well, nothing's changed in some sense. Yes, we've rearranged the deck chairs in our parliament. Uh, yes, we're going to get a new government. But it still comes down to us, I think. It's still up to us. We can't, we can't become better people and become a better community and a better country always looking up to others to do it for us, particularly when they're politicians and civil servants. And it comes down, I believe, to each and every one of us, and I'm not lecturing anyone here, I'm really talking about myself, because it's what we do each day, what we think each day, it's what we say each day to become better people in of ourselves, better people for our families and those around us, for our neighbours and for our community and for each other. And I think it's very easy that we look to casting a vote or thinking that if one tribe gets in to run things over another tribe, we improve. Or if the All Blacks win the World Cup, we improve. But actually it comes down ultimately to the choices that we make. As hard as those choices are, sometimes to do the right thing and each of us needs to take that on board and become better people and I think if we all strove harder to become better people like I see guests working so hard to be good people and I know members in our community working hard to be good people they inspire me to work a bit harder at becoming a better person and if we all do that my goodness what a wonderful world it'll be and isn't it funny that when you try to become a better person yourself, you do a lot less finger-wagging, a lot less pointing out of other people's shortcomings and focus on what you can do yourself to be a better person for those around you. That, to me, is the lesson out of the election that we can't just sit back, cast a vote, change the government, and expect things to get better. 
it comes down to what we are and what we choose to do. Send me a text, 2057. Email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on rallycheck.radio. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. Here on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. What a show we've had. How much did we enjoy Kate Hillier telling us about how we can grow veggies just in a very small space? Practical stuff and fun watching seeds grow. I myself just are loving my tomatoes, growing from little wee seed into a plant. And if I get any tomatoes, <laughs> that'd be a plus because I'm just loving my plants. I do feel as though like, they're my babies, and I worry about them at night and where they should be to keep warm and moist and have everything they need to grow big and strong. Uh, she was wonderful. And remember, don't forget, we've got that prize. It'll be a canvas bag and packets of seeds from Yates, 12 packets of seeds. But they're the heirloom uh, plants that uh, Kate was talking about. These are the ones that are very old, not sort of bred and modified the originals um so to do that to enter that draw you just need to text us uh your favorite vegetable choose one of carrots or lettuce and to improve your chances give us a tip your best gardening tip on 50 words or less and how amazing was simon fleck on the simple things that we can do to prepare for you know, things that we've seen already, high winds bringing down power lines, floods, earthquakes, oh my goodness, uh, volcanic eruptions, uh, all sorts of things, but just things like fresh water. And I remember talking to uh, earlier and someone went through the Christchurch earthquakes and they're living just outside of Earth, uh, Christchurch and they actually had no fresh water because of the earthquake. And you just never think about having containers uh, kept so you can last a few days just with your own water. Great show. Thank you for being along. Thank you for listening. Send us a text, please, 2057. Email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. Tell us what you thought of the shows, uh, what you thought of what we covered, the guests, and any tips and suggestions you have. Please let us know. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Rally Check Radio.